Hello and welcome to the Full of Beans podcast, hosted by myself, Hannah Hickenbotham. Throughout these podcast episodes, we will speak to a range of individuals about their experience of eating disorders, with the aim of increasing awareness and understanding, whilst reducing stigma and isolation. Please note that the topics discussed in this podcast may be triggering for some individuals, so tread lightly, check in with yourself and reflect on these conversations. Hi everyone, it's Han from Full of Beans. Today's episode, I'm joined by Eva Woods, who is a member of the Youth Parliament for Peterborough, representing young people aged 11 to 18 in the city. One of the issues that Eva is really passionate about working with is sexual harassment in schools and the link to eating disorders and also increasing the eating disorder curriculum that is based in schools. This is something that we talk about a lot today, Eva shares her personal experience of sexual harassment in school, the development of her eating disorder, and then we also talk about social justice and the link to eating disorders there. We do talk about sexual harassment in this podcast, and I wanted to pop that as a trigger warning as well as the mention of eating disorders. So if this podcast doesn't feel like something that you can listen to right now, that's absolutely fine. Tread lightly with yourself and know that this podcast will be here when you're ready. I really hope that you enjoy this podcast episode. So let's get on with the podcast with Eva Woods. Cool. Brilliant. So what was the talk you were doing today? Uh, it was for the coronation, actually. So, um, yeah, in Peterborough Cathedral, they had an event. So I'd gone to give a little speech about what the coronation means to young people. Uh-huh. Nice. Oh, amazing. And uh, I imagine you've been quite busy recently because of the local election as well. Did you have much involvement in that or? I was quite, um, I was quite restricted in how I could get involved because I'm in a non-partisan position. So I was Ah. bound by the herder rules, but um, I can be a bit more reactive now and talk about what the results are going to mean for us. Amazing. Oh, very cool. Very exciting. (laughs) But yeah, I guess talking on the topic of politics and campaigning and stuff, how did you get involved in the work that you do um, with Peterborough? So I started off from a very like community-based approach. I was involved in lots of different groups like Peterborough Youth Council. I've worked with Peterborough Citizens, which is a branch of Citizens UK. Um, I've been involved in lots of theatre work. Parker, which is um, support for um, refugees and asylum seekers in the city. So I was involved in lots of things like that. And it was about, well, just over a year ago when the elections for member youth parliament came up in the city. I hadn't heard of it before. I didn't know we had a youth MP or what they did. Um, And one of my teachers actually pushed me to stand for election, which I'm really grateful for. So, um, yeah the election process everybody submits a video manifesto i think there were about 10 candidates when i ran um and then every school in the city acts as a polling station so i think it was 25 percent of the 11 to 18 year olds in peterborough voted and that's how i got to the position some 11 to 18 year olds in the city clearly thought i'd be good at it which i'm very pleased to hear It's awesome. And, you know, I think, you know, from our conversations before, how highly I think of you and, and how incredible the work that you're doing is. And I think, you know, just at your age to not this, oh my God, I sound so old <laughs> saying that. But like, just to have that interest is, you know, I think amazing. And, and also the things that you have worked on to kind of have the passion and, um, you know, want to make change, I think is, is such a brilliant attribute to yourself. But for the listeners, obviously, I know a little bit about what you have been campaigning for and what you've been changing. What have been the like main points that you have been working on whilst you've whilst you've been working with Peterborough? So, like I said, we all started our uh, election campaign with a video manifesto, and all of those video manifestos had three points. Mm-hmm. And the three points on mine were reducing sexual harassment in schools, addressing how eating disorders are discussed in the curriculum and this has evolved a bit over the past year but um the abolition of university fees i still do support um quote unquote free university Mm -hmm. um but that as a campaign obviously very blue sky thinking for a two-year term um just on your own in peterborough so that campaign evolved to be more of an access to university thing 
and then um there's been more stuff that's come up since i started the role so i've done lots to amplify the position of youth mp because i, I didn't know we had one and i was mm -hmm. quite involved in the community so i've tried to network engage better with the local media use social media um, and just turn up at things and be a voice um, I work on violence against women and girls as well. I um, work on the National UK Youth Parliament campaign, which is about universal free school meals. And my ambitions for the next year, it's quite comms based, so trying to improve communications with young people in the city so we know what's going on and people know how to get information to us. Um, and better conditions for young workers in the city, 16 to 18 year old workers who are still in part-time education, access to work experience opportunities to help people plan their future careers. There's lots on and I feel like it took me about six months to settle in and to understand like how to make change um, in terms of local government and the voluntary sector as well. Mm -hmm. And to feel confident to have those conversations and also to consult with people as well because you feel like you have so much more of a mandate to do some of these things when you've heard from people that it's important to them. Mm. Yeah, it sounds like you're one busy individual, <laughs> um, but all sound equally, you know, so important. And it's amazing that you've been able to recognise that. But yeah, I can imagine when you're doing this sort of thing, it just takes some time to sort of, you know, work out what's going on, work out who you need to be in touch with, work out, you know, what problem should I do first and which is kind of, you know, going to take priority when they're also important. So two years doesn't really feel like that longer period of time when you've got that massive chunk already to kind of like find your feet. Um, and I think obviously like the things that we were going to talk about today you sort of mentioned at the start um of what you've been working on and I just wondered if if it's okay with you maybe if you wanted to share a little bit about your experience and why sexual harassment in school and eating disorders in particular are things that you were so passionate about sort of increasing awareness and providing that support for young people absolutely and it's been a massive journey for me since starting the role because these issues are so important to me and my identity and who i've become that it was quite difficult for me to campaign on sexual harassment and eating disorders when i first started because i would still feel like a physical reaction to the memory of it mm. and i still do sometimes when people talk about eating disorders especially the social justice side of it which i'll come to um it it produces a physical reaction in me it makes me feel like I want to cry and my voice changes so I think yeah they're definitely very central to my own experience so I the peak of my struggle with an eating disorder because obviously it never quite goes away it comes back at different times with different triggers but the peak of my struggle um so far was when I was 14 years old I'm 17 now and I ended up getting support from NHS services and um, I the journey to that point to a point where and obviously I'm sure lots of listeners will know that you have to meet certain criteria to get support from the NHS so I got myself in a very unhealthy state and to get to that point it all started with issues of body image and how others saw me which came from experiences of sexual harassment in school. And that's why those um, that's why those two ideas are linked in my memory and in my work. So when I was about 11, 12 years old, first going to secondary school, and it definitely started earlier than that as well, um, you come into a culture in British schools, in my experience as well, um, where you are constantly just on your appearance, you are objectified and you are sexualized at a very young age. Mm -hmm. And that's, this is all by peers, not by staff. In my own experience, obviously that must happen sometimes. But um, I remember coming into secondary school and some of my earliest memories was being told um, I had a flat bum or I had no boobs. And I was 11 years old. So um, like many people in my cohort, that was completely natural. Mm -hmm. um, and people who didn't look the same as me would also be commented on. There was a ridiculous over-sexualization of 11-year-old girls. And a lot of it was coming from 11-year-old boys who um, didn't really know what they were saying, didn't mean what they were saying. They were 
regurgitate and stuff that they'd heard from other people, especially online and with older friends and in various places. So British secondary schools are incredibly over-sexualized environments where sexual harassment on a verbal level is part of everyday interactions to the point where it's normalized and um, physical harassment as well. So that wasn't necessarily my experience, but with peers have been through similar things. Um, there's been lots of unwanted touching and things like that. In the classroom, at break time, teachers either not seeing or taking a boys will be boys attitude that's decreased a bit over the past two years since it all blew up in the media but when I was um in when I was in my younger years it was definitely very much boys will be boys so the issue wasn't taken seriously or it wasn't seen or people who had the power to do something about it um, weren't seeing the extent of it and what that did to me in my head um the start of it was um wanting to change my physical appearance um and that led to various behaviors but um also it start when you build your entire identity off how other people see you and how you're perceived and when you're at school you have nothing else to worry about other than what people think of you at that age and um I got into a state where the only thing that I measured myself on or thought about the only goals I had in life were how I was perceived by others. And that was the foundation of my experience with an eating disorder. And that's why I will always see verbal sexual harassment and other forms of sexual harassment as linked to the development of eating disorders amongst young girls, secondary school girls, because that was my experience and the experience of lots of my peers as well. Yeah. Well, I mean, thank you so much for sharing that, Eva. Um, I'm sure a lot of people will be able to resonate with that. And I think it's it's really too common of people, you know, having experiences like that and then, like you say, wanting to change their appearance, whether that's maybe to make themselves feel less attractive, maybe make themselves feel more attractive because of that sort of identity and the way that all that they really care about about themselves is the way that they look because it's being so recognized by other people um I've heard people say you know sometimes it would be kind of putting your body in a compromised position so almost able to hide in your body um but then also you know I mean you were 11 which is drastically young but I've heard people say as well that sometimes anorexia in particular it can be a way of putting themselves into a much smaller body like almost like a childlike body which I want to say isn't sexualized but unfortunately you know in in some scenarios that is um so yeah I think the the link is definitely one that's really strong and really powerful and I just wonder you know what you've been working on in order to sort of you know combat that in schools and and make sure that people have the space and the support that they need so it's a very big issue to tackle obviously (laughs) and there's a lot of nuance as well because when i've done consultations across the city after my election it was the sexual harassment in schools was the big ticket item on my manifesto so i wanted to better understand why that was such a collective experience of young people across Mm. the city. And um, I found that whilst there were some unifying elements, it was actually very diverse. So what came out of um, the mandate for sexual harassment has actually been a peer research project. So far there's been 12 schools and colleges across the city involved. And I'm very passionate about living wage as well. So I've employed one young person in, 11 of those schools and colleges one of the colleges does it voluntarily um and given them all the training to be peer researchers to hold trauma-informed structured conversations with young people in their school so what's happened is there have been um between two and four focus groups in each of those schools and colleges where students in different year groups have talked to one of their own peers about their experiences of sexual harassment and um, what they think the school could do better. And those peer researchers are now being supported by me and by Peterborough City Council to develop a set of recommendations, which they'll then present back to their school so that their school can use 
that student voice to create measures that are based on our experience because like I said um, there's been harassment going on in classrooms that it's felt like teachers haven't noticed so a recommendation that might come of that is smaller class sizes or a bit of time built into the day after lessons where students can go up to teachers and report something that's just happened in the class just as examples that's sort of like the flow process that the project has followed so you have those conversations we support the peers to come up with recommendations and they're given back to their schools and because it's got Peterborough City Council on the back of it we're hoping that it will be taken quite seriously by the schools that are involved and it's never about trying to name and shame or expose I get people can quite easily figure out which school I go to because it's in various news reports about me and people say don't you feel like you're given a bad image to your own school I'm absolutely not because this happens in all schools and colleges and we know that and it's about figuring out why not if it happens it clearly does and in terms of eating disorders kind of in following the same reason we know it happens it's not about finding out if this happens because lots of work gets done to understand where it shows up and who it affects and prevalence rates but I want to understand why young people um, who may have had a similar experience to me or may not have what did they need to hear earlier that would have stopped them from following that same journey that I followed and so many other people have followed what did they need to be told when they were still developing their sense of self that may have helped them not to build eating disorders and disordered eating into their identity and that sounds very conscious like we choose to do it we absolutely don't mm -hmm. but some of us have them some of us seem to be able to go through life perfectly fine without worrying about doing stuff that is so difficult for those of us who do suffer with disordered eating so I want to figure out what is it that young people don't come into contact with or don't hear or don't experience that means that it's easier for them to for them to become people with disordered eating patterns compared to people who can just live a normal life and aren't scared of the same things or affected by the same things. So I'm working with um, activists and researchers and poets and all sorts of people who work in the world of eating disorder advocacy to build some curriculum materials that can be used in schools in PSHE lessons um, to answer the questions of what are eating disorders and expanding that definition past um, eating disorders is when you don't eat enough because you have bad body image and the way to fix it is by going to hospital um, and answering how they can affect people so it's not just about um not everybody with an eating disorder will be thin it affects your relationships it affects so many things about your life who can get an eating disorder absolutely everybody and trying to hear from different voices in that conversation and how can we support people with eating disorders both in terms of their personal recovery and in terms of the social justice approach as well how can we on a structural level reduce the way eating disorders affect our society so that's developing at the moment as well and i'm still in position until february 2024 so that's my ultimate deadline and i'm hoping that will be delivered and implemented by the time i step down yeah I mean it sounds fantastic I think it's it is so needed like you say because unfortunately eating disorders are so prevalent and I think with social media and things like that and those pressures they're just becoming even more common um and to have that education you know will hopefully prevent that one thing I wanted to ask you is because I think you're right in that eating disorders definitely aren't a choice we know that um and sometimes in retrospect, you can look back and think, oh, I wish I hadn't done that. Um, but from from my experience, you know, my my latest relapse. I kind of and I don't mean this to be negative, by the way, I'm just <laughs> want to explore this with you, but I kind of had the perfect situation for an eating disorder not to occur you know I'd had an eating disorder before so everybody around me knew all the warning signs all the red flags it was you know totally oh Hannah you're not eating as much like is everything is everything okay 
comments from grandparents of you've lost weight like is everything okay everyone around me saw that that was happening you know my partner could see that the food that I was eating was reducing my exercise was increasing it was all there and people continuously said stop doing this like you know you don't want to go back to the eating disorder and that to me is like a perfect um situation for preventing an eating disorder for jumping in before it happens and because I've already had an eating disorder I also knew the detriment that that would have on me so from my perspective from both my perspective and the my loved ones there should have been a lot there that was like cut it dead I also went to the GP within a few months got support from the GP um went on antidepressants I didn't have the whole you don't weigh low like you don't weigh low enough there was a lot of support there but still I'm here now, unfortunately, in quite a chronic relapse um, and kind of all the barriers that I'd been told previously to put in place in order to prevent it, they didn't work. So I'm really interested to hear from you the kind of thoughts that you have around kind of that preventative element, because it's so important. And I do completely think that there is a possibility of it working, but it's just kind of like, I think maybe the things that I thought would be preventative, actually, that eating disorder is so loud that to me it was happening, kind of whatever happened. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I think what's interesting about relapsing is that that voice stays with you and it at various points in your life it's louder than others and sometimes it can be very loud but for whatever reason you're you have a defense against it so sometimes my voice is incredibly loud but I I'm very social social justice driven and I will be able to shut out that voice by reciting to myself some kind of mantra about how I'm oppressed by this voice and I it makes me feel more powerful to ignore it and sometimes it's not particularly loud whatsoever but it's incredibly attractive and I'm drawn to it I think the reason I want this curriculum to come into place for earlier years around the time when mine developed so sort of between the ages of about 11 and 14 15 is that I want to try and give people the tools to never let that voice set in in the first place. And because once it's there, it's really, I don't know, maybe some people will say that they have got rid of it, but I haven't met anybody who said that they've recovered permanently from an eating disorder and never felt like they're getting close to a point where they're struggling again. I really want to support people before that sets in and before it becomes a part of your identity and who you are and something that you not come to terms with but learn to recognize and understand your own relationship with I don't want anyone to have to get to that point in the first place where having an eating disorder is who they are and that's something that they live with on a continuous basis Mm. and I think that really starts with helping people understand what disordered eating is and that's one thing I hope the curriculum will cover that actually these dieting behaviors and these rigid addictive exercise behaviors aren't normal and shouldn't be normalized and to question it and be critical of it when you see it promoted so the idea that I mean it comes from parents a lot as well the idea that you may have grown up with um a mum who's a cereal dieter for example and um like you've seen it very normalized around you to um follow very strict rules and then feel very guilty when you break them and you can't see inside other people's heads or your empathy isn't fully developed when you're at that age so you may not understand that actually that extreme self-shattering guilt that you feel when you don't follow your rules isn't shared by everybody who diets some people break their dieting rules and it's not the end of the world they have a bit of a laugh and they feel better about the food they ate and they start again tomorrow but you can't understand that when you're at a young age and your empathy isn't fully developed you don't understand that not everybody feels the same guilt as you do so I want people to understand that disordered eating and 
symptoms of an eating disorder are not necessarily just about what you do it's about how you feel about it and what it means to you the significance of those behaviors and i want people to be able to understand that that guilt and that measuring of yourself or whether it's not guilt whatever emotion it makes you feel to engage in eating disorder behaviors is not normal it's not healthy and then you have to put the support in as well you can't tell a 12 year old actually you're having some very unhealthy thoughts and there's nothing I can do about that. You can direct them in terms of support. Mm -hmm. But I want to get in there while people are still developing and to help that be built in um, so that they never get into a period where that becomes a habit because it's difficult to break those habits. And also where um, as their values are still developing, um, they value themselves and mm. they don't base their image so much on what other people think of them or feel a need to um, fit into certain categories or be perceived in a certain way um, and I have had to be quite specific in my aims because there is the eating disorder support world and advocacy world is so vast and when I was working in the as, as somebody who works in the political sphere, I can't cover all of that. Um, so what can I do specifically that is going to support young people? So I chose to do something preventative because that's where the gap was in my community. And it's coming from the idea that we want to stop the development of eating disorders before it becomes a part of your identity and help people understand that those emotions aren't healthy and there is support available for you mm. uh, yeah brilliant I, I think it's it, you've knocked like every single nail on the head and I think getting into schools and you know because I always think about that period of my life you know from like 11 to 18 that is really when you're developing your identity you know you're maybe not hanging out with your parents as much you have a bit more kind of freedom um a bit more advocacy for yourself and a bit more autonomy for yourself and you know I think that's a real time in your life where you do start to think hmm, what do I like what don't I like like who do I like to hang out with what's important to me and like you've said there if if body image and the way that you look becomes that whole thing um maybe because that's how you've been before you know maybe you've been brought up in an environment that your appearance or the way that you look is the most important thing which can then trigger I guess more body image concerns and in eating difficulties but to be able to say oh actually but that's not the only thing that's important about you there are so many other things and let's help you to build this identity um, of things that you like and of things that you like to do um rather than just the way that you look and also like you said putting things into place for support I think that's one thing that I would have really loved at school was to know okay when I'm having a difficulty where do I actually go like you know I had I think one lesson on eating disorders and I sat there thinking yeah this relates like I, I feel like I get this um and then you know like you say you have that thought of oh actually this maybe isn't normal but then you walk out of the classroom and instantly you're met by everybody talking about the, the latest diet they're on, whether it's like mums in the playground or your friends or whatever, everybody's talking about a diet. So then you just automatically snap back into that. Well, it is normal to, you know, be really concerned about my body. Um, but I think actually to have somebody say it's not normal for it to be that kind of like controlling on you and this is where you can go for support would have absolutely made a difference and in the same way as we are getting better at supporting young people to know what's normal in terms of their mood and in terms of their anxiety levels so um supporting young people to understand that everybody has bad days but if these if you're experiencing these things you might be depressed or everybody mm -hmm. gets worried about things but if you're experiencing these things you might be anxious and you might need support I would love to see the same in terms of relationships with food because I feel like mm. if somebody tells you, if, if you're talking to a young person from a safeguarding perspective or also from a friend perspective as well, if they're telling you certain things about their 
worries or their mood and you feel like that's quite serious then you would you would suggest to them that maybe they might be depressed or maybe they might be anxious that somebody could tell you loads about their dieting behaviors and their exercise behaviors and however else their eating disorder manifests and people who are very clued up in terms of mental health would still congratulate them for being so dedicated so I think we really need to see a better awareness of eating disorder behaviors and um a, a better sensitivity to the emotional side that's attached to it and the meaning that's attached to it so like I said there could be some people who are exercising every day because they're incredibly motivated as an athlete but there could be somebody who's exercising every day they don't they don't even know why they just feel compulsive that was my situation I didn't have a reason why I didn't have any goal I just felt like I had to mm-hmm. and to support people who are having conversations with young people that their friends and also the adults in their life to have eating disorders in their minds when they talk to young people about body image food exercise so that it is something that you question and it is a criteria that you're checking against when you're talking to somebody when you're talking to a young person you're concerned about actually eating disorders aren't this peripheral thing that a very very tiny amount of skinny quiet girls get it's something which affects lots of people um from lots of different walks of life and um whether they fit stereotypes or not and that actually somebody's describing those behaviors to you they might have an eating disorder and i think it's important that we we see them as something which is probably much more widespread than we'd imagine especially in terms of disordered eating outside of diagnosable eating disorders um disordered eating patterns which may not be quite so clean cut or easy to differentiate between a healthy state and an unhealthy state mm-hmm. um and to with that knowledge that actually it's very embedded in our lives probably more so than we think question some of these behaviors and normalizations more mm. yeah yeah i think you're so right and i think there is a responsibility there of of you know adults and people working with um you know school age children and in that sense I know you've spoken about the curriculum but have you kind of thought about the specific training provided to teachers and things like that because I think there is definitely a responsibility there but equally you know teachers aren't psychologists they're not you know they're not qualified to necessarily nav- help navigate somebody with an eating disorder but I guess they can signpost and refer and then I'll so like an added element on that. Do you think there's any particular types of teachers that need more training? You know, like a, a PE teacher, let's say, that sees somebody doing a lot of sport. Or do you think it should just be like across the board? I think I think it should be across the board. And that's because teachers, you can't always tell. And there's no pattern to which teacher students will feel comfortable with. And mm teachers will know the students best or students will feel most able to talk to those teachers Um, and that can change year in year out based on the students interests or which teacher teaching which subject I think it's important for all teachers to have enough of a basic understanding of warning signs of eating disorders so that for whatever reason if there's a if there's a close relationship between that teacher and that student um, no matter who that teacher is whether their pastoral or that's not their responsibility they're able to um recognize that concern about that student in the same way as they might already be very well informed to spot some safeguarding concerns they should be trained to spot eating disorders just as well Mm. but i think one thing i would say is that you can schools like to have as part of their ethos that every child feels known i know my school definitely has that as part of its ethos that every child is known and even if absolutely not every single member of staff in that school can know that child but there should be somebody Mm. whether that is a designated pastor or form tutor or whatever or a classroom teacher who knows that student really well and knows what is normal for that student Mm. and what isn't because i think a massive part of spotting when someone's struggling because eating disorders are very secretive obviously that student it, it 
they may not have lost weight and it may not be very clear the behaviors they're engaging with but you will be able to if that student really is known like the school hopes to there will be one member of staff who spots that something's not quite right and then they can escalate that to the safeguarding team who will have had much more in-depth training and be in a position to support that young person the teacher's role is to know that student really well and be able to differentiate when something's not right mm -hmm. and something that's come out of the sexual harassment research as well is that it's so much easier to go to somebody once you already know they're there and you've been there before mm -hmm. so um like you mentioned in terms of um seeing the gp quite early and having that intervention quite early in your journey this time um lots of young people have said once they've been to so lots of schools will have a safeguarding office where the safeguarding team are based um and sometimes it's quite mystified and students see that as a room which usually has frosted windows for students privacy so students can't really see in obviously that's a that's a pro and a con that room has lots of privacy but if you've never been in there for any reason it's very difficult to know what goes on it's quite a mystified space mm -hmm. and while students have gone in once they feel very comfortable going back to talk about a range of concerns but if you've never spoken to the safeguarding team or you've never had in, any interaction with those staff or with that department it's difficult to do that for the first time so i think there's an element as well of safeguard designated safeguarding leads or whoever's in charge of well-being in schools um, to be visible as well and to make an effort outside of the privacy of students who get support from them to be out, be seen, be known, know students who you may not need to talk to very often because actually everything seems to be okay at the moment mm -hmm. so that when something's not okay they feel just as close to you and just as able to come to you as students who you may interact with on a very regular basis that's such a brilliant point and it's not something that i'd actually thought about but you know now i look back to when i was at school and you know there was a lot of people that would go to sort of the pastoral team quite a lot and you know they did have genuine valid difficulties i'm not saying that in the slightest but then you do think about those people that didn't go very often so they hadn't built that rapport with somebody they hadn't maybe got that confidence what support were they getting when they did have a struggle? And like you say, would it have even been recognised if they were struggling because nobody knew their sort of norm? Um, and I think, like you say, it's a very difficult one, isn't it? Because you can't necessarily know what student is going to get on best with what teacher. Um, and then you don't want to have, you know, one particular favourite teacher having to look out for every single student. Um, but then having someone designated is difficult because not everyone is going to get on with the person that they're designated with. You know, I think back to school and my favourite teacher was my biology teacher. Um, but like, you know, nobody would have known that. Like he was a 30 year old man that I just had really <laughs> good banter with that I really liked. I really liked his personality. So he was the person that I went to when I was struggling. Um, and, you know, he fortunately knew exactly where to kind of pass the information on to um but it was really nice to have that space to go to and for him to know then what to do with that information as well so i think that kind of teacher student relationship like you said for everybody to at least have one person that helps them feel seen and helps them feel held i think would is a really helpful um intervention there yeah and there is a sense of like I've seen this with sexual harassment um, that there are individual recommendations that are very nuanced to each school environment that they can do better. And I would love to see the model that we've used replicated mm -hmm. for other issues and in other places. But the sort of central uniting issue is capacity and funding. Um, we know there is very much a whether it's new or whether it's just more visible now, mental health crisis amongst young people at the moment. Um, there's been lots of work done around the impact of COVID on eating disorders, for example, and lockdown. Um, schools need more capacity to deal with these issues and the better teachers are trained to spot them, the more cases are gonna keep getting referred and referred and there isn't always the capacity to support all those young people. And it's less of a case of, okay, we need to triage, prioritize and give less people support because that's such a massive issue in the eating disorders world already that we are triaged to the point where 
only people who are literally on the brink of death will ever get NHS support. And even then, lots of people are still missed. Mm. Um, we need to stop trying to triage and reduce the amount of people who get support unless their life is at risk and start building capacity. And that is going to have to come from funding and that comes from central government and at times local government. So we need to, whilst there is lots of pressure on schools in terms of the way they do things and the way they manage things and the way they can optimise their own efficiency and accessibility, there is always going to be that bracket of capacity and mm. we can't tell schools you need to do better, you need to do better without recognising that they're not being fully supported either at this point. Yeah, undoubtedly. And I think, unfortunately, with anything that we seem to talk about with eating disorders, it comes down to resources. And I think it's really interesting because it's almost the same dilemma that they've got in the NHS in that we know how we should be doing it. We should be doing it that everybody that is struggling gets support and you know we've got a pretty good idea of what that support should look like but in order for that to come to play there just need to be some changes in structure and that takes time and that takes money and then like you say if you have a better system in place more people are probably then are going to come forward which at the start may feel really overwhelming but then actually because you've got a better system in place with better trained professionals you've got a better structure people are then able to get help before things get critical in the long run you save so much time so much money because you're able to support people and people can go off and flourish and they've got those coping mechanisms then that if you know like you said you know for some people full recovery might be possible my personal perspective is that it's actually through recovery an eating sort of thought might come up and you just you know how to deal with it now so it doesn't cripple you that will happen rather than sort of you know that revolving door patient client student whatever you're going to call them because they've not had the appropriate support to really get that grounding and that basis in to know how to support themselves in the future so I think it's the same issue that which is so funny, isn't it? Because it's a public service. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And the way I see it as a young person, it's my job to have radical ideas um, mm -hmm. for change and restructure that yeah. some people who are very set in their ways, not necessarily in a bad way, because some of them work, some of the ways that we've established do work really well is my job to come up with outlandish new ideas that seem crazy now and I, it becomes my life's work to build up the evidence to support it so if anybody's going to be taking the mantle for restructuring these things it, it's going to have to be people in positions like mine young mm -hmm. people who are strategizers and thinkers so I think it's important for me and other people in positions like mine to not be afraid to come up with these new ideas because we can talk about inefficient systems but at the end of the day as we go out into the world of work is going to be us who's going to have to redesign them yeah absolutely and you know change is scary there's no doubt about that and I think a lot of the time people are like well this is how we've done it for years so therefore that's how we're going to keep it but you know change can sometimes be good and I um when you were saying it then I think we're really similar people because I'm very much the kind of person that I will throw shit at the wall and if it doesn't stick then I'll just try something else I'm not really beaten down by the fact that it hasn't worked but because of that it means that I try a lot of different things and then you actually get something that's really positive and you collaborate with people and bring in all their ideas as well so I think a mind like yours is excellent to have on board to sort of keep you know keep trying new things keep bringing in new mm -hmm. initiatives having that fresh idea um and something else I just want to pick up on just because I'm quite interested in um what it means to you so you mentioned social justice and how your eating disorder feels like an oppression and so you're able you're in a position now where you feel that you can kind of not listen to that and sort of voice and I just wanted wondered if you wanted to expand a bit more on that sort of social justice element and how that relates to your eating disorder yeah absolutely um I think one of the things I remember from the very early stages of my recovery was feeling able to advocate for others before I felt able to advocate for myself so if I heard other people who were being 
shamed for their body or um, for the amount they ate or for being lazy or what, whatever the label assigned was, I'd stand up for them a lot better than I could stand up for the for the voice inside my own head. So um, there's the body there's the body positivity movement, and then there's other sort of social justice um, movements that have eating disorders embedded in them, or vice versa, which really empowered me to want to get better for my own personal life and in terms of the way that I'd improve my existence and the lives of the people supporting me but also in terms of it felt like an act of resistance to want to fight my eating disorder and I remember when we were in lockdown I just um I decided to start reading again which is something that my eating disorder hadn't really let me do um and I read the beauty myth and obviously there's lots of elements of that book which people have different opinions on I have different opinions on but one of the things I got from that was like a very um feminist and obviously feminism's not just about women it's about everybody a very feminist perspective on um eating disorders and sort of body policing um and when I was in year 11 so I was 16 I'd um was I, I will say I was physically recovered but not mentally emotionally recovered at that point and for English GCSE everybody has to do a sort of spoken exam and give a presentation I did mine on our eating disorders a product of the patriarchy and um, I remember getting up and lots of my friends had also struggled with eating disorders and they told me afterwards that they were quite worried about what I was going to say and whether it was going to be triggering. But I've worked really hard not to make it triggering and to make it a very critical analysis of how who makes money off eating disorders and at the diet industry and how some of our biggest role models still perpetuate diet culture and um you might notice that when I was talking about my early experiences of sexual harassment, I talked a lot about girls. Obviously, it happens to everybody, but overwhelmingly, it happens to girls and feminine young people. And I wanted to understand why that was as well, which is why I linked it to the patriarchy, because in terms of who makes money off eating disorders and diet culture, a lot of the things that are sold to us monetarily, it's women who are the primary people buying it so eating disorders are marketed to girls and women and I remember delivering that to my class when I was sort of partially recovered in a much better position than I was and able to think clearly but still in a very eating disorder dictated mindset and it just felt very empowering I I cried midway through while I was talking because I was still at the stage it was very difficult for me to talk about but I knew that that was what I knew that was what I felt really passionate about and it felt exciting to be helping other people understand that it's not, it is a lot about our own personal recoveries and that is part of the motivation for wanting to get better and wanting to fight it and support our friends to fight it. But there's also sort of a wider solidarity element to it as well because whether we get to the stage where it's a massive part of our life and we're particularly struggling or ill or not it does affect all of us um and people do get rich every single time we engage with it so there's a social element there's a social justice element to fighting eat, eating disorders as well and that's partly why i take it with me in my politics mm. that's so interesting um and it's not something that I've ever, I've considered, but never really used that specific terminology around it. But I think you're so right. And particularly with the advocacy side of things in being able to advocate for other people and not necessarily yourself. And I hear that literally, you know, every single podcast I do, someone comes on and they're, you know, they say, I had my experience and I want to help other people. And it's absolutely fantastic. But I'm always very aware, like wary of, but are you helping yourself first and and that is such a key piece um so thank you so much for highlighting that and I think it's also really interesting in terms of the power of the eating disorder because I guess just as a little anecdotal story but my therapist the other day so I've just recently left my job and the reason was because I was I was being treated very unfairly and um wasn't having the respect that I deserved and my my 
kind of colleagues were making me feel like I wasn't enough and never doing enough and so I went to my therapist I was like I've quit my job she was like that's absolutely amazing power to you for you know blah 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 she was like so can you quit the eating disorder now then because that's making you feel exactly the same and I said my job was making me feel like the eating disorder made you made me feel and she was like why can you not stand up for yourself against the eating disorder but you can recognize your worth in your job and know that you deserve better and so that's just made me think a lot there about sort of advocating for yourself and it might be a perspective that might help some people in terms of thinking okay like maybe my recovery can be me advocating for myself which may feel equally as uncomfortable because sometimes you know you don't feel like you're you deserve it or you're worth it um but maybe looking at where you have been able to advocate for yourself in other areas to then translate that into your eating disorder you might be able to see hmm, well I did it there so maybe I am worth doing it here as well absolutely and I'm, I'm very passionate about workers rights as well young workers mm-hmm. especially in my role um I'm it, one of the things that frustrates me most is the amount of um like the way that the law gives loopholes to employers to not respect young workers right to a break um mm-hmm. and in terms of the minimum wages as well i champion living wage i think the minimum wages are absolutely despicable in this country in terms of in relation to the cost of living yeah. and i was able to I'm not always, sometimes I do get offered a break at work and I say, are you sure it's fine? I can keep going. And then I have to slap myself on the wrist and be like, no, you take your break because if mm-hmm. this was anybody else, you'd be telling them to do it. But it's it's yep. easier because it's not got the same emotive effect as the eating disorder. It's easier for me to say, give yourself the same respect you would give other people. And I'm, I'm very passionate about people respecting themselves as workers and knowing their value and um not wanting to work for employers who don't respect them and see them as an equal and I think for me a massive part of my eating disorder was holding myself to different standards to other people Mm. and feeling like um even though feeling like trying to think of how to say it feeling like I genuinely deserve to be held to different standards to other people like I was almost a different species Mm. and like I was capable of more and that was a good thing because I was um I felt like I was very capable and I had a lot of potential but that meant I would have to work a lot harder and I deserved less rest and I deserved less sympathy and less love and I really think an important tool that young people should be given is to know that they are worthy of just as much rest and sympathy and respect as everybody else and you shouldn't hold yourself to different standards and you shouldn't feel the need to compete with everybody else and feeling like you're incredibly strong and powerful doesn't mean that you have to that should be a positive thing it shouldn't be something which ends up Mm. oppressing you um and i think one of the things (laughs) to tell a little anecdotal story um one of the things that i noticed recently i'm a massive fan of the movie encanto sounds a bit random but um i watched it for the first time last year and there's a song surface pressure which lots of listeners might know um and it's about one of the characters who she's like super strength and um, mm-hmm. she plays like a massive role in the village and like people call on her to do things that would be physically impossible for them all the time because she has super strength. But actually she's struggling a lot and she can't cope under all the pressure. And when I heard that song for the first time, I cried and I had never related to anything so much. And I listened to it again a couple of days ago and it struck me that actually I don't relate to it anymore like it doesn't it doesn't trigger the same response in me like obviously I can still empathize with it but yeah I don't feel so reflected in it and I think that's a sign of me having learned to respect myself more and when I'm tired to tell people I can't do that that's too much to ask of me I can't do that right now or I can do it but I'm going to need these adjustments and these accommodations I can't get there at that time but I can get there at this time 
I can't do that this weekend, but if you can give me an extension, I can do it. And I think I wish I could have arrived at that point earlier. And I hope that because it's easier in terms of the world of work than it is in terms of the world of your eating disorder because of the different emotions attached. I hope I can maintain that in my continuous relationship with my eating disorder as well to be able to defend my own boundaries and to feel like I have the right to do that. Yeah, that's so awesome that you have been able to develop that and really work on your awareness of your boundaries and stuff like that. And, you know, it just made me think there when you were saying about that it's maybe less emotion attached to a job than an eating disorder. But I actually think it's it's a really good place to practice it um, to be able to say, you know, actually, I can't do that right now. And maybe I, I do need some time out and I do need a break. If you do that in your job or at school or with friends or whatever, you, you're then practicing it so that when the eating disorder comes, it's then easier to do with the eating disorder. Um, and I think actually when you were saying that, it made me really reflective of another job that I had. And they sort of, because, you know, classic kind of anorexia traits in that you're very determined, very driven, kind of do everything that everybody asks you. You'll find time for everything, perfectionism, all of that. So it's always done very well. So you get asked to do it more. And it's almost, kind of taking advantage of the fact that you are a high achiever and that you are a go-getter and they're brilliant characteristics to have um but it's interesting how it can often align with then people developing developing an eating disorder as well because of that kind of you know wanting to have that perfection and that eating disorder voice really being able to play with that so yeah I think that is a very interesting point that you've raised there mm. And without creating a hierarchy of who works the hardest or anything like that, I know that you do lots of different things. You do this and then you have a, you have paid jobs as well. And I'm the same. I, I have my paid job, which I work about 15, 20 hours a week at. I have my full-time education and then I have my work as a youth MP, which can take four plus hours a day sometimes. Um, and I feel like, I do hold myself to superhuman standards sometimes and I have people say all the time you seem to run on a different clock how do you do it I I know lots of young people mm -hmm. who work much harder than me and have to balance much more in their days and without creating a hierarchy of um what hard work is um I think because you can do things that a lot of people would see as impossible or it might genuinely be impossible because of different situations that doesn't mean that you are any less deserving of rest or downtime. And it's especially hard in terms of, obviously, when you struggle with an eating disorder as well, and people around you see that and they see you as somebody who um, doesn't eat particularly much or exercises a lot, it's difficult to go against those perceptions people have of you. And it's difficult to hear them notice it when you do. It's mm -hmm. difficult to hear people say, oh, it's good to see you eating more. Or, it's good to see you taking a break because that's not a good thing to you. That makes you feel incredibly guilty. Um, one of the things that I try and say to people who work incredibly hard and balance lots of different things in their life, myself included, but some people who do a lot more than me, is that other people will see you as someone who's constantly on the treadmill and somebody who never stops. And when they notice that you've taken a break, either because you were genuinely on your knees and you had to, or because you chose to, that shouldn't trigger guilt in you. That shouldn't make you think I'm letting people down because they're surprised to hear that I'm not working as hard as I usually do. It should make you feel proud because you've had to work really hard to make yourself do something that feels a little bit uncomfortable to go out of your comfort zone it's ironic that for some of us the hardest thing we can do is do nothing but you've had to work really hard to make yourself do that and that shouldn't be eroded or backtracked the second somebody questions it or notices it when they notice it that should be positive recognition you should be proud of the fact that you've let yourself rest yeah absolutely it's it's a difficult thing to do though isn't it because I think we do live in like a grind 24 7 society and actually being able to take a step back it is that guilt isn't it of like oh god if I don't do it all today then what's going to happen tomorrow sort of thing um but I think it's so important because you do just burn out and you know from my personal experience I've had several burnouts and you know it 
it's not it's not a nice situation to be in because then you feel even more guilty because right now I literally can't do anything and nobody's letting me do anything. Um, but Eva, thank you so much for joining me. It's honestly been such a wonderful conversation, such a pleasure to chat to you. Where can people follow you for finding out more about all the campaigning and the advocacy that you're doing? So I'm on Twitter at Eva Woods NYP and I'm on Instagram at Eva Lindy Woods and I try my best to keep everything on there but it might come in like little bursts of me being obsessed with me being obsessed with social media and then quiet bits but I try and keep everything on there. Amazing thank you so much best of luck with everything and if there's anything that I can help with you know please do just shout because I think the work that you're doing is absolutely fantastic. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for having me. If you enjoyed listening today, you won't want to miss next week's episode, so be sure to subscribe. Eating disorders are crippling illnesses, but with the right support, they can be recovered from. We really hope you enjoyed this episode, but if you require more support right now, please look into charities such as First Steps and Beat for support or talk to someone you trust.